You have access to the entire world of NPR with your smart speaker. Ask it to play NPR to check the news while you get ready for work or fix dinner. There's a new radio in your house, and it's easier than ever to listen to Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and more. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. On a recent evening, my producer Ponzi and I went curling. Sort of. I'm doing it. Okay. I'm doing it. All right. It's going to be horrible. Here we go. You're supposed to yell. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) I'm going right for it. Look, it was perfect. (laughs) I got a bullseye. I got a curling bullseye. You actually did, even though the stone was going back and forth and back and forth. It was rockering. Oh, boy. FYI, there's no bullseye in curling. The target itself is called the house, and the bullseye is called the button. But details, right? Push it, push it, push it. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, boy. I got it. I got it. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I got it. it. Oh. Every four years, the phenomenon called people who know nothing about curling but want to try it happens at ice rinks around the country. That's because when the Winter Olympics roll around, the games throw a massive spotlight on this quirky little sport. And amateurs want in on the action. Naturally, Ponce and I had to check it out. So we headed over to an ice rink on the D.C. waterfront. And we weren't the only ones who wanted to toss the stone down the sheet. I'm a future Olympian, just FYI. Are you? This is my first curling event. I'm going to be America's sweetheart. (laughs) America's curling sweetheart? I've already decided there's going to be, like, my gold medal years, and then after that, things are going to get kind of trashy, and then I'll go on the reality shows. That delightful treasure was Chris Madai of Washington. Excuse me, I have to go follow him for the rest of my life. And I'm Lauren Ober, almost as delightful a treasure. And this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on the show, we dig into the wide world of podcasts to bring you enlightening conversations, and maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. This week on the show, it's the Big Listen Olympic Extravaganza. We're celebrating the 2018 Winter Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea. And what better way to kick off the games than by getting a little taste of the Olympic sport of curling. It's probably obvious now that no one at this rink in D.C. knew how to curl. So I figured I'd call up an expert to get the inside scoop. Hello. Hello. Hi, Ed. It's Lauren. How are you? Good. How are you? That's Ed Simia. He's the Yale curling coach and host of the Broomstackers podcast. Let's learn to curl on the first episode of Broomstackers season two. Gave me the broom. I saw it from the hack. Man, I wish that was our theme music. Simia got into curling after seeing the sport on TV during the Olympics. And that inspired him to go to a Learn to Curl event. He got on the ice for a few minutes, threw a couple of rocks, swept a couple of rocks, and then I signed up. And just like that, Simia's love of curling blossomed. But what is curling exactly? Curling is a very old sport that was invented in Scotland sometime in the 1500s. And basically, it involves two teams sliding rocks down long sheets of ice, about 150 feet, towards a target that looks like a bullseye at the other end of the sheet, and teams are trying to uh, finish with their rocks as close to the center as possible to score points. It sounds really easy when Simia describes it, kind of like a cross between shuffleboard, bocce, and horseshoes. But curling is actually pretty tough, especially since it's not on terra firma. I don't want to scare anyone away from curling, but it is ice. Um, The ice is a little bit easier to walk on than, say, uh, hockey ice or figure skating ice, but... Yes, it is still ice, and ice is always dangerous. 
Besides the sheet of ice, the only thing a curler needs is a stone, a broom, and some Teflon-soled shoes to help slide along the ice. The granite stone weighs about 42 pounds and has a handle so curlers can put a spin on it. The broom, well, that's a different story. Curlers use their brooms to sweep the ice. The sweeping is done to warm the surface of the ice. It's a, a pebbled surface. It's not flat. And when we warm the ice, it reduces the friction just a little bit, which lets the rocks go even further. And uh, at least for a while, lets them go straighter, which is why you'll see the skips, or captains of the team, uh, yelling down the ice for their players to sweep. Lane's perfect. Well bit room. The excitement. I cannot handle it. Well, that is not at all what it sounded like at the Learn to Curl event here in D.C. Our rink sounded more like this. Champion curler. Oh, my God. Was born to curl. What? All right. Great job sweeping. I think you know it was all due to sweeping. <laughs> we're going to hear more from some extremely beginner curlers in a bit. But first, we're going to Pyeongchang to visit with sports reporter Lauren Shahadi. Well, we're not actually going to Pyeongchang. Shahadi is going to Pyeongchang, and she refused to pack us in her suitcase. Rude. Shahadi is the host of The Podium, the official NBC Sports Olympics podcast. And she's interested in the stories behind the sports. Figure skating is one of the game's most popular sports. And in men's figure skating, all eyes are on a young phenom. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nathan Chen. The youngest of five children born to Chinese immigrants. He tried skating for the first time on a practice rink built for the two. Normally, Shahadi covers professional baseball for the MLB network. But since it's the offseason, she has some time to take a crack at the games in South Korea. Lauren Shahadi, host of The Podium, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. Okay, so tell me what The Podium is besides, like, I feel like the thing I've never been atop of. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> you and me both, Lauren. This is a podcast that's really all-encompassing. Athlete profiles, athletes to watch. You know, watching the Olympics on NBC is such a treat for the viewer because of the sights and the sounds. And we at Vox kind of provide the storytelling of how the athletes got there. Maybe their road is, you know, anything but paved, and it, it shows the sacrifice and the dedication that's on the NBC screen. It's really an insider coverage of the 17 days of competition. It's also a look into the culture of South Korea. Yeah. That's our hope while we're on the ground, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wonder, when you were a kid, did you did you watch the games, like, obsessively? I think my love for the Olympics started, and it was pretty recent, with Michael Phelps. Yeah. And I got the chance to interview him not too long ago, maybe six months ago. Uh-huh. I thought, what am I going to ask this guy? Right. And, you know, my first question was, what do you eat? That was my first right. question. Like, I couldn't muster up because I remember him, you know, this the, this great Olympic swimmer. And we'd wake up in the middle of the night to watch him swim. Yeah. And he said he put it 8,000 calories in his body. That is insane. I'm thinking, what about now? <laughs> he said it, he said it uh, caught up to him pretty quickly. Right, now right. Now it's about 2,000. He's leveled off. I feel like these elite athletes, um, like, they think they're, they're like everyone, but they're not. No. Imagine if your professional life, Lauren, was summed up by three minutes. 
No. <laughs> you know what I mean? It would, it would, it would, for me, it would be like the worst three minutes of my life. You know what I mean? I'd be like, yeah. but I have thousands of other good minutes. Come on, guys. It's true. But we see three minutes of an yeah. athlete's journey. There's a lifetime behind right. it. Right. And if you're off for a day, if you're having an off day, you might feel like the last four years was for naught. Mm-hmm. So it's such a high stress environment. And I just can't imagine the feeling of wearing USA across your chest. It's just has to be probably the most proud moment ever. Yeah, yeah. So are, are have you gotten to cover the Olympics before? Have you gotten to go to the venues before? Never. This is the first time I got Ooh. a call. They said, do you want to go to South Korea? I said, what? <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, never been. Right. So how do you prep? Because I get stressed out going to a sporting event, right? Because there are tens of thousands of people. You're going to not, you can't find your seat. Where does the bathroom? How do I eat? And here you have dozens of sports, uh, countless events how do you even map it out of of how you're going to approach covering them you're so right plus the security detail which is incredible at at the olympics i'm Mm -hmm. told we're preparing for that you know having three copies of your passport having money different money different currency different language all of that kind of stuff but i find it uh, exciting, and it's a bucket list for any sportscaster. It's a bucket list for any any person, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to the stories we're going to tell the mm-hmm. most. Mm-hmm. We have so many cool episodes on the podium. One is about tropical athletes. It's called No Chill, and mm-hmm. the premise is no snow, no problem. Tropical countries going for gold? I know what you're thinking, so let's just get this out of the way. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's bobsled time. Cool That, of course, was from Cool Runnings, the Disney film loosely based on the story of the Jamaican bobsled team at the 1988 Olympic Winter Games in Calgary, Canada. The real story, you won't be surprised to hear, is quite a bit different than the movie version. But this is true. They had a team song. And it's true that everybody thought they were totally crazy to even try competing. Here's Otto Bolden again. Yeah, that was a movie that I think, um, I don't think the producers originally intended for it to serve the purpose that it eventually did. But I think there is some truth to that. It is a comedy. It's a, it's a heartwarming comedy. But when you look at what the facets of that movie, in fact, are, it's about not letting your circumstances or your current environment derail your dream. They're tropical countries, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a long lineage of excellence in a certain sport. Mm -hmm. So Jasmine Fenlater competed in Sochi in bobsled. Her father's Jamaican, and she wants to grow the sport in Jamaica. She Mm -hmm. feels it's her duty because her father loved it so much. But it's a hard task. The resources aren't always there. The climate certainly isn't there. And they have such want Mm -hmm. and they're so dedicated to it beyond anything, Lauren, which impresses me so much. The dedication to... I mean, think about your daily task. If you wake up, it's to be a good person, to to serve your family uh, and to grow bobsled in Jamaica. Right. Everyone's on the beach. It's 100 degrees. Right, right. You're like, come on, this will be fun. Let's go freeze our tails off. Exactly. And and do something that's, I mean, it's dangerous. It's dangerous and it's her life goal. Right. 
It's just fascinating to me. Right. Although I guess it, you know, to me, it makes sense that these countries that have produced phenomenal sprinters would also be able to field teams that require, you know, a running start, right? Maybe the weather doesn't matter. Maybe the, the ice or the snow doesn't matter. It's just like your physical ability. And it's funny you say that we sit down with Vanetta Flowers, who is mm. such an interesting case. She was a sprinter. Mm-hmm. She was a runner. Uh, she has a crazy story. She was a track runner. She failed to qualify for the summer games twice. Mm-hmm. So dejected, sort of. She went back to her hotel, saw a flyer, Lauren, mm-hmm. to compete in bobsled, <laughs> started training, and right. oh, by the way, won gold. Right. Became the first black athlete to ever medal in the Winter Olympics. In the Winter Games. Yeah. How many times do you see a flyer? No, never. You, <laughs> no one's ever all, being like, hey, uh, do you just want to try out for the Olympics? You have your coffee on the way to work. Right, like, yeah, exactly. I'll try for bobsled. Exactly. No exactly. Although I do know that the U.S. Olympic Committee does those sort of crazy searches where they're just they're looking for like sheer athletic ability yeah. that they can mold into these sports where maybe America doesn't necessarily shine. I think you're right. I think that there, if there's talent, if there's motivation, if there's speed, if there's heart, they kind of have the mentality, hey, we can teach you to do anything. Mm-hmm. If there's a love of country and a will to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. Right, right. Um, I How many of the stories um, that you're going to tell are aimed at making people cry? Because I feel like... Every time I watch the Olympics and they do like now we're going to cut to the personal stories. I'm always suppressing the tears. Yeah, it's true. We do. We've um, kind of interviewed a few people for one of our podcasts. Um, J.R. Selsky is a three time medalist Mm -hmm. in the Winter Olympics. So in the trials in 2009, Lauren, he was injured during a speed skating Mm -hmm. crash. Mm. He thought he was going to bleed out on the ice. He thought he was going to die. Everyone was watching. His parents were in the stands. They're just you know, you go from wanting to win gold in one instant to wanting to live. Mm-hmm. 60 stitches, five months of rehab. Oof. He looked up to Apollo Ono. He, you know, he's a warrior in his own right. And five months later, not only did he walk again, he competed Oof. again. That story is just uh, one of perseverance. But then there's also stories on that we do in action sports. You know, it used to be that snowboarding was a sport your grandma would say, ah, oh, those crazy kids, right, you know. Exactly. <laughs> but exactly. it's kind of. You know, it's it was considered dangerous and a fad. Now it's mainstream. And, right. and how they got there, the evolution is a really cool story. We dive deep. Uh, will there ever be another Sean White? Right. Iconic, independent of the sport he played. Yeah. Um, look at Kelly Clark, a snowboarder, you know, who's mid-30s from Vermont, mm-hmm. half-pipe gold in 2002. So there's mostly stories that are going to make you cry. Right. Thank you. Uh, but tune in. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but tune in for inspirational stories and, and fun stories as well. Lauren Shahadi is the host of The Podium from NBC Sports and Vox Media. To find out more about the show, check out BigListen.org. Now, when you're talking about high-drama Olympic sports, curling probably doesn't come to mind, at least if you're an American. The sport is known as chess on ice. It's slow and methodical, and there is practically no trash-talking. But as I learned at a recent curling event, the sport holds its own mystique for folks like the Berberick family from Northern Virginia. Right. Yeah. Right. That we was like curling on TV. Oh, so, you yes. do? Yes, we do. Yes. Wait, you're kidding. No, <laughs> we really do actually. We know we all watched, the terms. Yeah. We know. Yes. Really? So this year, yes. Yes. Yeah, the last stone is the hammer. Yeah. yeah. So this Olympics is the first <laughs> time they're going to have um, 
Koa, uh, yeah, mixed yeah, teams. Mixed doubles, yes. So America, there's a brother and sister representing. Really? So. Yes. The Berbericks were talking about brother-sister curling team Matt and Becca Hamilton. This is the first year for mixed doubles in the Olympics, and the Hamiltons are in the hunt. I personally would give Matt Hamilton a medal for his mustache, but that's just me. They probably have the best chance of any of the um, American teams of meddling. I would say they're probably a favorite to come away with a medal. That's our pal Ed Simia from the Broomstackers Curling Podcast. When you watch elite curling on TV, you notice a couple of things. One is that curling at that level actually looks really hard. It isn't just a bunch of goofs chucking a stone down some pebbly ice. Just the act of delivering the stone does require some athleticism, and certainly getting good at doing it consistently requires a lot of core strength and balance. And then there's the sweeping. When you watch them on TV, it looks effortless, and that's only because they are so good at that level at their technique. It's actually a very difficult... um, cardiovascular workout, especially over the course of a very long game and a long tournament that involves many games. The folks sweeping tend to be younger and bigger than the players sending the stone. When the sweeping picks up, it is a major bicep burn. Back at the rink in D.C., I didn't see a ton of intense exercise happening, but I did see a ton of people sweeping with one hand and taking pictures with the other, because it's all about the gram. She was not going to wait for us to take pictures, so you got to get the action shots. (laughs) Multitasking is imperative. The Berberics are just lucky they didn't end up on their fannies. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we're going to chat with Olympic ice dancers Madison Chalk and Evan Bates about using their sport for something more. At this point in our careers, we really look at it as an art form, and we want to use our voice in skating to send a message and that's been our main focus over the past few years. But first we're going to look at the underbelly of the Olympic movement with Dave Zirin, host of Edge of Sports. My basic argument is that all Olympics, no matter where they're hosted, have three common denominators and that's debt, displacement and the militarization of public space. Three very happy topics (laughs) that most people don't think about when we talk about the Olympics. That's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Hi, it's Anna Penna from Northern Virginia. I'd like to recommend the podcast called Chitheads, specifically the episode with Lauren Fishman on yoga as medical treatment. So do you want to talk a little bit about what your research has shown you about lower back pain, the causes of it, and whatever else you want, might well, want to share? Well, lower back pain is the biggest medical reason people okay. go to yoga. And right now there are more yogis in the United States. There are like 47 million yogis, according to one report anyway, right. which is more than there are Baptists. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there really are a lot of yogis. We're taking over. We're taking over. I mean, and there is a religious component, but no clergy. I mean, we don't yeah. have to talk about that. I think it'd give them a lot of, um, a lot of play to people who, you know, might be interested in incorporating some very, you know, low impact yoga into their daily lives. Thanks so much. Bye. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I want to clarify that the podcast Anna recommended was Chit Heads with a C-H. Just wanted to be clear. Well, if you very attractive listeners have a cheekily titled podcast you want to recommend to us, give us a bell. Pod line number is 202-885-POD1. 
For a lot of us, the Olympics symbolize sportsmanship, resilience, and the tenacity of the human spirit. But if you look beyond the gleaming new stadiums and the battle-ready athletes, you might find a different Olympic story. Sports writer Dave Zirin has spent a lot of time thinking about the impact of the games on the host countries. In 2016, he wrote a book called Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy about the negative repercussions of the Rio games, including displacement. Here he is on his show, Edge of Sports. Ken Oena was displaced from his home for the 1964 Olympics. And you know, he is able to come back from that, build a decent life for himself, get a small business. And now that small business is being torn down for the 2020 oh, God. Olympics. So, so it's like that, to have this happen in his life twice, uh, 40 plus years or 50 plus years apart. I mean, it's staggering. Dave Zirin, host of Edge of Sports. Welcome to The Big Listen. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So we all know it's a winter Olympic season. Um, you've covered the Olympics yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, what games have you covered? Well, I've covered every games really since, uh, Athens in 2004, uh, mostly at a distance using on the ground stringers, uh, to do that work. I spent a tremendous amount of time in Brazil. And mm-hmm. so I started going to Brazil in 2011, I believe and going back and forth pretty regularly Mm -hmm. until the last time I was there, which was the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And what's wild about that experience is like my my basic argument is that all Olympics, no matter where they're hosted, have three common denominators, and that's debt, displacement, and the militarization of public space. Three Mm -hmm. very happy topics that most people don't think about (laughs) when they talk about the Olympics. So so none of my common denominators are like glory, gold medals, but debt, displacement, militarization of public space. And in the lead up to the Rio Olympics in 2016, I thought... And some people said, and I took these criticisms very seriously, that I was being too catastrophic as to what would happen in the aftermath. People Mm -hmm. said to me, Brazil is one of the largest economies in the world. It's a country that's larger than the continental United States. Relax. It's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't been fine. In many respects in Brazil, it has been far worse than I predicted. Um, Rio, the state of Rio is in absolute disarray, mired in debt. The mayor of Rio, whom I interviewed in advance of those Olympics, is now under uh, criminal investigation. He's one of the best friends of Michael Bloomberg, was Mm -hmm. being held up as this global mayor. And the Rio that I started visiting in 2011 doesn't exist anymore. And that's because of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether you're talking about more desperation among the poor, whether you're talking about an incredible spike in violence um, in the favelas, like a staggering spike in Mm -hmm. violence, all of this are economic processes that were exacerbated, if not started, by them hosting first the World Cup, where that Rio was the epicenter of, although that took place across the country, Mm. and the Olympics, which were entirely in Rio. Right, right. Okay, so we need to to think a little more critically about the Olympics then. Yeah, I mean, we we have to. I mean, if for no other reason than that the Olympics are coming to Los Angeles in Mm -hmm. 2028, and I know that sounds like a long time away, Mm -hmm. But that also means uh, 10 years of preparation for those summer mm-hmm. games. So I'm wondering if you could give me your definition of what you think the Olympics are. Because I think that 
probably different people have different understandings of what they're what they or perhaps what they are meant to be and what they actually in fact are what they are are two things that both operate on parallel lines yet also uh, buttress each other Mm -hmm. the olympics are a neoliberal trojan horse in that it allows or a sporting shock doctrine if you will Mm -hmm. that allows and i saw this dramatically in rio that allows for the pushing through of reforms on issues like privatization security and militarization that would not exist if not for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Like if they just came in and said, hey, we're going to seize these public lands and build condos on it. And maybe they're, you know, people want these condos. Maybe they don't, but you're going to be pushed off where you live. And oh, by the way, we're now going to have closed circuit TV cameras on every corner and those aren't going to go anywhere. And we're going to allow the military to act as police. Mm -hmm. What do you think? (laughs) People would be like, you need to leave right now. Right. But when it comes wrapped in the Olympics, it's allowed to be pushed through. Now, the mm-hmm. other parallel line mm-hmm. is you have to say is the glory of sports. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we live on a pretty uh, I think of it as a, a high carb monochromatic diet. It's usually men's sports and it's usually basketball and football primarily. Right. And the Olympics to huge audiences show that sports is not monochromatic, that right. it's that it's got tremendous diversity and diversity in terms of nationality, but also diversity in terms of the joy of physical expression. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the highest rated sport at the Winter Games? It's, it's women's figure skating. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have women front and center, athleticism, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and all these things that are usually, if not ignored, derided right. during the typical sports calendar. I think that you can't think about the Olympics without thinking about politics um, and agitation and all this stuff. I think about um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 1968 with the raised fists. And I think about the sort of LGBT backlash in the Sochi games um, in, in 2014. Why do you think it is that the, the games are this sort of lightning rod in a way or that, that this political action sort of shoots up around it? Well, it's, it's very ironic because uh, Pierre de Coubertin, who's credited with starting the International Olympic Committee and the modern Olympic movement for the 1896 Games mm-hmm. uh, in Greece, was creating these games in the context of rising nation states and nationalism. Mm-hmm. And so this, this was meant to be a space where sports would be used to put politics aside mm-hmm. and as a place to ease the tensions of those rising nationalisms. And yet the opposite has certainly been the case Mm -hmm. from point one. And, you know, these Olympics, of course, like being in South Korea at this particular moment with the tensions with North Korea Mm -hmm. are no exception. Right. You have North and South Korea, it was just announced as we're doing this show, are going to be marching in together under a unification flag. Also, the women's uh, hockey team Mm -hmm. is going to be North and South. Right. And a North Korean figure skating duo right. are qualified for the games from North Korea. Yeah. And all of these things are, frankly, unexpected. And they take place also in the context of North Korea and South Korea um, having talks. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting that all this is happening at a time where... We're talking believe, about buttons. We're talking about oh, yeah. nuclear buttons. But yeah. we were also talking about, I believe it was Sarah Huckabee Sanders... Um, or Nikki Haley talking about maybe we won't even send our Olympians right. to right. North Korea, which led to its own kind of outroar because the, that's the other thing about, I think one of the reasons why 
were attracted to the games to such a degree is that unlike other sports, many of these sports are so specialized mm -hmm. that you have people who are training their entire lives for, for 20 seconds down a mountain. And it's that crazy. in and of itself, that yeah. level of sacrifice and how it comes down to hundredths of a second, yeah. I think that in and of itself creates its own Mm -hmm. Kind of a kind of magnet mm -hmm. for the viewer. Yeah. So, what did you think when you heard that the South Korean team would be marching with a North Korean delegation? They'd be marching under this unified flag. Did it warm your heart at all, or were you a little bit um, well, more skeptical of it? It's interesting. Like I, I've been um, talking to a lot of people smarter than I am about this because. Like a lot of sports writers, when you come upon an Olympics, if it's in a place that you're not familiar with, you're playing yeah. catch up right. on a lot of history. Mm -hmm. And so in speaking, I've spent the week emailing people who are uh, who are academics mm -hmm. and several said, don't expect me to cheerlead for this because the instinct is going to say, yay, this looks like a step towards peace. But when you consider a lot of them said like the, the human rights violations at play in North Korea is that it looks like it's excusing those violations. Sure. And also I take seriously a poll that was taken in South Korea that only four in 10 people support right. this idea of going in uh, unified like this. And that, and that sh what surprised me about the poll was that it was skewed young in terms of people who were against it. So not oh. older Cold Warrior right. types, right. but younger people. But here's what my thought. Like I think people in the U.S., from my very unscientific analysis of social media and friends are are, are like almost relieved to hear this because right. when they think of North Korea, they think Trump and they think whose button is bigger. Mm -hmm. And now here is like a sign that there might be a chance of peace right. that exists outside of the Trump orbit. The, the other thing that I thought of mm -hmm. is I thought of 1972 in Munich. It was the first time that East Germany ever fielded its own team. Mm -hmm. And though the West Germans, they, they did this because they wanted actually as a step towards unity to say that we respect you and we respect your athletes. Mm -hmm. And yet that's not what happened. It actually led to rising nationalisms on both sides of the Berlin Wall, mm. separate flags, competitions, um, even to the point where one, uh, the East Germans brought their own beer mm -hmm. to Munich because they wouldn't drink <laughs> West German beer. So it, it was it was intense. So I, So my first thought was also like, like, okay, well, we tried the idea of lessening tensions by upping the ante on nationalism. Right. At least this is a step away from that, maybe. So if you, um, are you going to make any any medal count predictions? Any, who's going to be on the top of the leaderboard? Nah, uh, medal count predictions. Um, no, nah, Does it even matter? Lot. Yeah, I, I, no, not to me. I, I, I like looking at countries who only win one or two. Yeah. And for them, it's like a massive deal. Right. Or That's the countries. Where my head is. Or the countries um, that have never, ever been in the Olympics yeah. before. Like Eritrea is making its Olympic debut this year. Amazing. Uh, See, I'm so much more interested Malaysia in Malaysia is making its Olympic debut. Puerto Rico has an athlete going, yeah. which is kind of incredible to me. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I I am looking forward to that. Not that we'll get to see them on TV, but... Maybe, though. And that's the thing, too, about uh, the Olympics, is that if this Eritrean athlete advances, I'm going to be in uh, Ethiopian Eritrean bar in D.C. <laughs> watching that, and it'll be on. Yeah, that's what's great about the Olympics, although what's bad about it is certainly something we could do a show about. And in fact, we just did. <laughs> Dave Zirin, host of Edge of Sports, thank you so much for chatting Olympics with us. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Dave Zirin is the host of Edge of Sports from The Nation magazine. To find out more about the show or any of Zirin's work, hit up biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll chat with Olympic ice dancers Madison Chalk and Evan Bates about the challenges of competing in a judged sport. We make these programs and we put so much of ourselves into them, so much heart and soul, and then you're just putting it out to be judged by other people. That's up next. Stay put. This is NPR. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Miguel over in Baxter, Tennessee, and the podcast I'd like to recommend is the Adam Ruins Everything podcast from Maximum Fun. Adam Ruins Everything is basically a longer version of the show. He talks with experts that he has from the show and on various topics. I mean, we talk a lot about beauty ideals being messed up in this country, but it's, I think what the gap that we don't have is it's like saying, well, how do you get the lighting so good in that house? I don't know. There's a bunch of, there's like 10 guys with lighting equipment who are paid professionals who are doing, like everything else, we have this awareness that it's fake. It's like, like you, right. you, don't, you don't watch Jurassic Park and go like, how do I get a dinosaur? Like, you know that it's, <laughs> you know that it's made by, by uh, professionals and it's fake. He's very funny and the topics that he touches on are widespread. So there's something for everyone to learn that they may not have wanted to learn in the first place. Thanks a lot, big listeners. Enjoy. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and thanks to big listener Miguel for his recommendation. Well, if there's a show you love that you want everyone else to love, too, let us know. Call up the pod line at 202-885-POD1. We are here for you. American Ice Dancers Madison Chalk and Evan Bates began competing together in 2011. Since then, they've racked up a raft of awards and represented the U.S. together at the 2014 Winter Games in Sochi. This year, the duo is Olympic-bound again. Here they are skating at the U.S. National Championships earlier this year. They performed to John Lennon's Imagine. Madison Chalk and Evan Bates bringing the competition to a close here in San Jose. Oh, wow. That made me emotional. (laughs) Not only are the pair metal contenders, they're also big podcast fans, which is good since it's a really long flight to South Korea. Madison Chalk and Evan Bates, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes. I feel feel like we need to refresh listeners' understanding of what ice dancing is. I mean, most of us only see it like every four years when the Olympics happens, and I'm not entirely sure I know the rules. Well, you're not alone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for There are me. lots of rules. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there are a lot of rules and technicalities involved, but to give it a very crude explanation, it's it's like ballroom dance meets gymnastics on ice. <laughs> Which sounds like the hardest sport. Yeah, right. With sparkles and, right. and knives on your and feet. Glam. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Can you tell me the difference between ice dancing and pairs figure skating? Yes. In ice dance, 
we tend to not leave the ice as much mm -hmm. as the pair skaters. They, they do jumps and mm -hmm. overhead lifts. So that's the main difference. And ice dance is more dance oriented and footwork oriented as far as clean turns. We do lifts also, but the rule for us is you cannot lift your partner above your head. Oh, okay. So, so Madison, you you can't well, lift no. Evan above your head. <laughs> I just heard that, just and kidding. I was uh, seeing myself trying to lift Evan above my head, and I'm like, I picked the wrong. I'd right. be impressed. Yeah, I would be. I would be impressed well, as well. <laughs> right, because the, there's a little bit of a difference in size. Evan, how tall are you? You're a pretty big guy. I'm six two. Right. I do the lifting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is it weird to be that intimate and artistic in front of an audience, especially if you're just two people who are paired with each other and that's the extent of your relationship? At this point in our careers, we really look at it as an art form and mm -hmm. we want to use our voice in skating to send a message. And that's been our main focus, mm -hmm. making our programs um, re over the past few years. So it's we look at it like each program is a piece of art and mm -hmm. we want to say something different which with each program each year. Right, right. Although with most um, artistic endeavors, you are not judged in the way that you all are judged, which is why I feel like your sport and I think, you know, the, the other figure skating sports and gymnastics, they must be so hard because, you know, there's a set of points and criteria and all that, but it's like at the end of the day, subjective. Exactly. Especially for figure skating, I find, because we make these programs and we put so much of ourselves into them, so much heart and soul. And then at the end of the day, you're just putting it out to be judged by other yeah. people. And sometimes it's hard, but we still we still carry on and do it. And right. we do it because we love it. Right. Right. Okay. So you all have been skating together since 2011, but... <laughs> um, development. In 2017, you guys started dating, right? Yeah. Ooh, okay. It's like Us Weekly right now. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but it's so exciting. But I, you have to give me the scoop because how do you go from like skating partners, no bigs, and then like six years later, you're like, but now we're dating. <laughs> Maddie and I have known each other for more than a decade, and we mm -hmm. actually used to compete against each other. Mm -hmm. And... But as soon as we started skating together and spending all that time together, we just hit it off. I mean, mm -hmm. we really built an incredible friendship. And I really found a lot more joy that I had lost when I started skating with Maddie. I had gone through a pretty mm -hmm. traumatic injury where my Achilles was severed by a skate blade and I Ooh. had to have it reattached and Ooh. spent a year off the ice. And when I came back from that injury, I started skating with Maddie and it just felt like a new start and a breath of fresh air. She really just made me very happy. And, and when we were spending so much time together and, tr and traveling the world and also going through the gauntlet of pressure right? and having these really intense experiences together, whether they were, you know, positive or negative results wise, it was always, it would always just bring us closer and closer together. Mm -hmm. I started to realize that I really loved her and I really couldn't see myself spending my life with anyone else and mm -hmm. eventually just told her that and and then we started dating. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. 
somewhere after. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's cute. <laughs> um, so you guys are heading to Pyeongchang soon for the Olympics. Evan, it's your third appearance. Madison, it's your second Olympic appearance. What are you going in focused on besides winning? Our goal is to really just show these programs on at their best potential. And I think the changes that we've been making since nationals mm-hmm. will really do that for us at the games. So we're very excited to show people the improvements we've made. We actually just worked with a ballroom instructor. We brought him in from New York Mm -hmm. and really freshened up our short dance for us, which Mm -hmm. is good because you go through the season with the same programs and towards the end they can kind of lose their spark. Yeah, and so it was nice to yeah, it was nice to bring him in and give it a new new life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to talk for a second about our free dance in particular. It's really important to Mm -hmm. us. So we're skating to Imagine by John Lennon, Mm -hmm. and we chose that piece with the intention of showing it on the Olympic stage, hopefully to millions and millions of people around the world, and spreading just a really wonderful message of peace and positivity. Mm -hmm. In essence, the Olympic Games are a symbol of peace throughout the world because all the the con- com- countries competing against each other come together to celebrate athleticism and friendship and make new bonds that can often last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the perfect stage for the message of peace and hope and mm-hmm. unity. No, I think that's really lovely. It's a long plane ride to Pyeongchang. If it were me, I might load up a few podcasts. Do you guys listen uh, to podcasts? Yes. Yes. What? And you know what? Tell, what? We just Tell me. started a new podcast today that was recommended to us by a friend last night. We knew oh. we were coming on, and this all, all week I've been asking people, what, what podcasts do you listen to? <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of broaden our right. knowledge of podcasts and get some new ideas. And but right now find? we just started listening to Dirty John. Deborah is a successful interior designer. She tells everybody about the handsome doctor she met online who seems to live only for her. We would take a walk, he would hold my hand and want to hear all about my day. John makes her feel alive again. He came off as the perfect husband. But her family doesn't like John. It was very difficult to get out of the car because oh. I was so into the podcast. He's creepy. He's so creepy. <laughs> I, oh, I don't trust him. No. What else uh, you have in your queue? Well, on the weekends, we generally are in the car a lot, mm-hmm. and we're NPR nerds, oh, and we Saturday. usually listen to the Moth Radio Hour is on. Mm-hmm. We love Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me usually is uh-huh. keeping us laughing. Yeah on the plane. Exactly right. Live concerts on the plane. And you may think, no way, there is no way in this world an airline is going to strap me into a cramped seat and then while I am helpless, have a guy in a cowboy hat stand up with a guitar and sing about his truck. They're not going to do that. My favorite ever, like this kind of sparked podcast for me, was the first season of Serial, Uh which I feel like is standard for any podcaster. Mm -hmm. And that sort of set me into this fascination with murder mystery (laughs) and it led me to In the Dark, which was really creepy as well. Right. And I don't and then I and then I listened to Missing Richard Simmons, which Mm -hmm. I kind of loved. Over the next year I become a regular. I even lose a couple pounds. Richard and I become friendly. He invites me and my husband Jay over for dinner. 
and he gives us a tour of his enormous doll collection. I meet his very protective staff, his housekeeper slash best friend, Teresa, and his impossibly old Dalmatian that he feeds boiled chicken by hand and carries outside to pee by the pool. I really grow to like him. We even start talking seriously about me directing a documentary about his class and his life. And then on February 15th, 2014, Richard Simmons doesn't show up to class. It was so fascinating. You were Richard Simmons for Halloween one year. I was Richard Simmons for Halloween one year. That's true. Actually, funny story. I got pulled over as Richard Simmons by a cop. (laughs) Let me tell you, this costume was probably one of the best, most accurate costumes ever. (sighs) He had the chest hair drawn on. Yes, mascara marker. It was... Just something to behold. Uh, It has been an absolute pleasure and delight to chat with you guys. And I want to wish you such good luck in Pyeongchang. And I hope that you bring home a medal, the shiniest one. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's it's, been great. Yeah, thank you. Um, Madison Chalk and Evan Bates, members of the U.S. Olympic ice dancing team, thank you again. And safe travels to you. Thank you so much. It was nice talking to you. Yeah. Madison Chalk and Evan Bates are one of three ice dancing pairs representing Team USA in Pyeongchang. The ice dance finals take place February 19th. To find out more about our Olympic pals or any of the shows they recommended, go to biglisten.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Mm, nope, don't believe it. But before we let you go, it's time for... Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts. We're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. And if your show has reached number 289, well, it's like you reached the Olympics of podcasting. Okay, so this week's 289 is a show called Fight Horizon. Hello. I don't know what that means, but the host, Dan Rathmanner, says like always fight the horizon which i don't really know what that means either the real deal guys so he had on a host named daryl halseth from dragonfiretinderbox.com this is a guy who makes things to help you start fires when you are camping but i didn't want toxic fumes two men sit down together and they drink chaga tea out of sandalwood cups that daryl made yeah. perfect ran with it and then they spent like five hours talking about the chaga mushroom technically it's a fungus apparently it has all kinds of medicinal properties and it's something that you would want to consume it's a wood rot fungus i don't want to drink mushroom tea well why didn't you lead with that i'm sorry i just don't like i'm fine with it being sauteed in a thing but i don't want it steeped and like drink mushroom liquid i just don't you know <laughs> you sell chaga tea that's yeah. great anyway uh what i learned is that there's a thing called rendezvous reenactment camping no modern equipment type right. of stuff canvas right. tents and he and his family do this which is why he had to create fire starters um that he could take with him because he's like creating his own fire and you can't just like rub two sticks together that pretty much inspired you yeah uh, sparked the flame yeah <laughs> in summation Fight Horizon is a show about men doing man things. So if that's your jam, then check it out. I love mushrooms. Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. 
Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor podcast and hit subscribe. And if you're feeling fancy, leave us a review. It really helps other very attractive listeners find the show. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. We are almost as much fun as curling fail videos on YouTube. Seriously, check those out. You won't be sorry. Our email address is biglisten at wamu.org, and we love us some listener feedback. The show today was produced by the gold medal team of Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and Jacqueline Hyman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was getting so excited for the Olympics. I love them so much. Go Chalk and Bates! Special thanks to our new best friend, Tyler Scott from Michigan Public Radio, for helping us out this week. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts about Olympic curling from Ed Simia, Yale curling coach and host of the Broomstackers podcast. As far as the overall competition goes, the Canadian teams are always ones to watch. Uh, Canada is the dominant force in curling. It's really the one country on the planet where it's a major spectator sport and a major participatory sport. Uh, They say that Canada has somewhere around three quarters of the curlers in the world. Because most Americans know virtually nothing about the sport, Simia and his curling ilk are pretty popular, but only every four years. It's so it's on at bars and you walk in, you start watching and you let anyone know you're a curler. There are dozens of people asking you questions because everyone wants to know about it. Two weeks later, most of them have forgotten about it again. But for those two weeks, uh, you're very much in demand if you're a curler. So good luck. Bon chance, and as our Korean friends say, hua ting to everyone competing in Pyeongchang. Thanks for hanging out, friends. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR. NPR.